The world is a new place, and we're all making adjustments. It moves faster and changes direction more frequently than ever before. People feel stuck, unfulfilled, and lost in their lives. I hear this all too often. Where are the answers? Someone please just give me the answers. Well, what if I told you the answers are finally here? My name is Scott McDonald, and I was once just like you. Join me on my process of personal development, pathway of success, and pursuit of happiness. For you see, my job isn't just to ask questions. My job isn't to just listen. My job is to ensure what happened to me does not happen to you. This is the Real Experience Student Athlete Podcast. Today, uh, Scott McDonald, your host. Today, I'm joined by uh, the York University head coach, Dan Church. Dan's been with the university since 2004 and has been a very good friend of mine for the last couple of years and, uh, you know, has a lot to, uh, to bring to our conversation today. Dan, and thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, talk to me, what's going on in, in your life right now in this whole craziness, uh, COVID-19, because we'll get that uh, brutal topic out of the way. It's being abused by the media, and we'll just, we'll just do a little snippet of what's going on in your life right now. Yeah, so it's um, sheltering in for the zombie apocalypse. And um, <laughs> no, I think it's a strange time. I think uh, this is a kind of, uh, this is a time of year for coaches that coach a full season uh, at the university level where we're kind of uh, at home a lot more anyway. And so we're starting to recharge the batteries and, and uh, think about our, the year that was and, and plan for the year ahead that we want to be. So I think the, the, the challenge um, with, with this time of year is that there's no face-to-face interaction. And, uh, you know, so there's no real definitive end to your season where you get to have face-to-face interaction with your uh, student athletes at, at my level, um, or with your your manager and, and strength coaches and all those things. So we've had to really respond and and move to the digital world, which is amazing that we have the technology to do that now and, and have uh, a platform where you can meet with forty people face to face on a platform like Zoom. Um, and so we've been trying to figure out how that's all going to affect us and still 
be able to train even though we have no access to uh, training facilities. And so how do we make that work and take advantage of this time and, and maybe actually get ahead of some of the uh, of our competitors. And so uh, with every negative, there's always an opportunity for positives. So we're trying to find that. In your, in your career, uh, whether as a player or coach, uh, does this, you know, this is, I know this is on a global scale, but did you ever have an experience like this before where all of a sudden everything came to a halt and you're like, okay, we have to adjust. And this is, this didn't work out the way we thought it would. Well, not really, like I never was really impacted um, to this extent, but I do remember SARS and because I was an assistant coach at uh, the University of Toronto at the time and Karen Hughes was the head coach of the the national women's team and um, the world championships was canceled because of SARS and it was being hosted in China. And so um, that was the first time uh, that I remember a hockey event being canceled uh, because of a health crisis. And uh, so it's, it's similar in that way, although this is a, a pandemic as opposed to an epidemic. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's insane. Like I've talked to so many coaches and, and strength coaches and, and, and people, there's so much management in athletics. And to hear all the different things that are going on with the athletes, like, you know, especially for the, the Olympians for the summer, like they put so many years in and just like the mental effect that, that it's having on them. And the good thing is we actually have a better, you know, uh, a better support system now in place for something like this. And obviously there's different ways that they can adjust and, and move forward. Um, for your, for your program, you know, what, what have you guys done uh, to, to ensure that the players are, uh, you know, they're, they're not far out of reach from the staff and, you know, you're able to keep that, uh, that team camaraderie still alive, uh, even though your season's been cut short. Yeah, I, I think it's not what have we done because it's an ongoing process and we're still trying to navigate the, the waters, you know, the, the, the choppy waters of, of this whole situation. It's, it's an ongoing process, so it's what are we doing. So in order to, you know, I think the, the hardest thing on the athletes was there's no closure. You know, when you finish your season, win or lose, there's closure. Um, you know, you can bookmark the end or, uh, uh of your season because, okay, we, we didn't win and what are we going to do to be successful next year? Or we won what an amazing, amazing accomplishment. And what are we going to do to try and do it again next year? Um, But you have the game to kind of say, to test yourself against. And I think that's the hardest thing is there's no closure and there's no wrap up at the end of the season where you get together and you celebrate the victories. You know, we aren't going to be able to do a banquet at the end of the year and, you know, do the MVP and, um, and those other types of things. So, you know, at, at York, we're trying to do some of that online uh, to still recognize people for the accomplishments that they had this year, um, to recognize teams for improving, uh, coaches for having great seasons, athletes for, you know, making an outstanding contribution during their time at York University whether that's with the women's hockey team or an athlete on the football team or, or women's soccer or whatever the case may be. So we're trying to move some of those things into, again, the digital space. Uh, from our standpoint as a team, we've done a couple of um, Zoom meetings where we brought the whole team together to, to talk about the resources that we have available for them so that they know that if they need academic support to finish their classes, what's available to them in terms of tutoring support or writing support. Um, 
uh, mental health support because this can be a very isolating time and um, it can create a lot of anxiety and depression. And so making sure that there's an outlet um, for the student athletes and the staff um, to, to have that. Uh, so we've met a couple times as a team. We're going to do a year-end debrief as a team uh, in a Zoom meeting here on Friday. Um, I'm doing individual kind of season-end debriefs right now. So it's the way we're trying to navigate it is still have FaceTime, although it's, um, you know, while not in person, it's kind of over this electronic medium um, and trying to do the best that we can to stay safe and healthy, but also um, be ready for when um, we're able to go back to kind of normal life. Yeah, it's almost like a, a year end business as usual through virtual reality, you know, uh, with the season being cut short there. And, and you know what, I was actually talking to uh, Rachel Cole earlier today, who's the captain of UPEI. And, uh, you know, she said, like, that's what they've been doing as well, um, to the best of their ability, because it still hasn't sunken in. And she said, it probably won't even sink in until, you know, those when those athletic banquets or graduations do happen, postponed four to six months away. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you'll appreciate the company of all these players a lot better. Uh, wh one thing I like to do is, is, is to go back now into some history. And, you know, Dan Church, York University coach, been with the Hockey Canada program. But uh, it didn't, you know, your start didn't start out the, the way that some coaches do with a program that has to be built. And but now this year, it was a national title this year. And I imagine a lot of our listeners are thinking, wow, how did you get there? And uh, I'd like to kind of go through, uh, through that history um, from the, the building of your program, because you really climbed the ladder over the last uh, 10 to 15 years and uh, stuck it out in the, the program. The schools stuck it out with you. And, uh, you know, you finally, finally made it to, to where you want to go. And I believe you're going to continue on with that. So let's hear more of that story now. Yeah. Um, I mean, the beginning for me was, uh, I, you know, I was an assistant coach for seven years at the University of Toronto and learned from a really successful coach there and uh, gained a lot of experience and skills. And, and at the time, you know, women's hockey was really starting to fire up during that time. It was uh, just, you know, the 1998 Olympics was the first time women's hockey was, was in the Olympics. And so there was a real boom um, but back then there was a, a vast difference between the skill dominant teams and, and the rest. And at the university of Toronto, you know, university of Toronto's had women's hockey since the 1920s. So, um, it was a very established program within the school and Karen Hughes was an excellent coach. And, and we were at the, in the OUA championships every year and at the national championships every year. And so I was fortunate to, to experience all of that uh, in a winning program and what it takes uh, and have a great role model um, and Karen teaching me the ropes and how to be organized and all that. So I felt like it was really ready when I took York University as the head coach and then quickly learned that all the things you learn on paper don't mean anything. Uh, and you really have to cultivate a culture and you have to build a program and you have to I was all, I did a lot of the recruiting at U of T. So that, that was just a process and it takes time and, and how you build those teams year over year. And I think when you're starting from the bottom, you know, we, I took over a, a, a program that was in the, the bottom of the league and there was a lot of apathy around it. And, um, you know, to go in and, and revamp kind of the mindset of all the athletes to expect more and want more 
that was a challenge, you know, and there were maybe five players that, that made it from my first year there to the second year. Um, because some people were just like, ah, I, I don't want that level of competition. I'm, it's not for me. Uh, and that was okay. Um, so we had a young group and then you build up and, and you kind of uh, have some success and then that big wave graduates and you kind of start right back down and you hope you don't fall all the way back down to the bottom. And, and so we've had a bit of a roller coaster from 119 and two in my first year in 2004, um, 0405, I think it was, um, until this year where we were ranked in the top 10 for the whole year. But I don't think, I mean, I've changed a little bit as a coach. I don't change. I think I've changed a ton. I've obviously uh, learned a lot more about myself. Uh, I think I've refined some of the things that I do on the ice and off the ice, but really it's about cultivating a group uh, and bringing them forward through the years and trying to build the pieces around them so that when you have an opportunity, I think if you had asked me at the start of our season, are we going to be in the national championships? I probably would have said, well, if everything goes perfectly, we would have a chance, but it's unlikely. But then everything did go almost as perfect as it could. Um, and, and when I look back now, I just think, you know, it was, we had great leadership. We had mature, a, a more mature team. We had great rookie class. Um, we had great goaltending and we had to use, we have four goaltenders this year. I, I didn't, you know, one was a, a graduating athlete that's had some cha challenges with injury. I never thought she'd play in a game and she ended up having to back up the, you know, through the playoffs because our first two goaltenders were injured and out for the season. So it was our third goaltender that was, you know, uh, our starting goaltender for the, um, for the playoffs. But, you know, and when I say third goaltender, really she was you know just really close to the, the other two it's just you know that's the way it goes we had tremendous depth in that position and we had a great coaching group this year and just everything that we've done over the last few years just really paid off and mostly it's because we had a great group and they were easy to lead and uh and they led themselves too so um i think you know a lot of times it's just about being ready for when that group comes along. So you have to do things to cultivate that group, you know, so that that happens, you bring those things into fruition. And then it's about being the right leader and coach for when that does come together. It was, and that, that kind of reminds me of something Scotty Bowman said uh, when it comes to building a winning program that you have to uh, eliminate all the crutches of, of a program to be successful. Uh, what were some of the crutches in those, in those, uh, not, I don't want to say darker years, but, you know, struggling years to, to make that program to where, to where it became today. Yeah, I think it's a good, um, a good way to look at it. You know, the excuses or the crutches or the things that, that prevent you from being successful. It, in a way, we're really fortunate because we had this documentarian, um, you know, a, a filmmaker, a guy who was in film school at York, happened to be friends with a couple of our players. And he said, asked me if he could do his first year film project on our team. And I said, yeah, but if it's good, I want to be able to put it on YouTube, you know, as, as a kind of a recruiting piece. And he said, yeah, that's great. And it, it was excellent. And, and then I paid him to come back and do it in subsequent years. So we have this record of the last five years of what it's been like. And uh, he did a kind of promotional video for the school as we went into the playoffs and um, 
there's a clip of me saying how we are not prepared for adversity to the team. And I just think about how we so much over the last several years, we've talked about in the game, you will either win or you're going to learn. And it's not win or lose, it's win or learn. And I really feel like all those losses, the difficult losses, the, the heartbreaking finishes to our season where we missed the playoffs by one spot, by a couple of points, by a win in October, or a win in January would have got us in. I think all those things allowed this group to, to learn how to be better through adversity. And we stopped pointing the finger. Um, you know, my dad had a great saying that when you point a finger at somebody, you got to look at the three that are pointing back at you, not just the one that you're pointing out. And, you know, when you're making excuses, you're trying to place the blame somewhere else, but there's, what could you do to make that different? And I think this group really learned to look within, you know, how to be a better leader, how to react to a situation in a more positive way, how to grow, you know, to address our, 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 our areas that we need to improve, you know, our so-called weaknesses and make those into strengths. And so we did all those things, you know, they followed the plan. They bought into what the coaches were selling. They, they were led from within. They responded to our leadership as coaches. And so, you know, I think that the challenges were belief. We never believed that we could do it before. And I also think back to, you know, my fourth years on this team, when they were in first year, we were at the bottom. We had kind of not fallen all the way to the bottom, but pretty close and I brought them all out on the ice in their first month. And I said, I want you guys to think about where we want to hang the championship banner. And they all kind of looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, but you, you need to think about that. And then every year we would come back and we'd talk about like, what things do we need to add in to be that kind of team? And we were, you know, one win away from getting that this year. So it was, it was pretty cool to see that kind of looking back and reflecting on it uh, about how close we are to, to achieving that dream um, that, and, and that goal that we set five years ago. Would you say that the, that winning mindset is a skill that's developed through, you know, through their minor careers where they're winning in tournaments, they're playing game seven hockey, they're winning championships, they're on teams that are successful. Um, do, do you think that's a skill that is looked at by coaches when recruiting a player to the program rather than saying, okay, here's the most skilled player in the league. They're never on the best team. Uh, but, you know, here, here, here's a group of kids who, who have won a lot. Is there a lot of stock value in that from a recruiting standpoint? Um, it's a great question because I, 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 the simple answer is I don't know. I, I think, I think, there are certain people that have more innate abilities in terms of resilience and grit um, for whatever reason. It could be their competitive mindset, their upbringing, uh, a great coach, a good program, and they develop the skills and, and have the tools earlier perhaps. But I also think there's a huge value to losing um, if you have the right approach to under, because only one team is going to be the ultimate success at the end of the year in each league. Only one team is going to win a national championship at our level. Only one team is going to win the Stanley cup. Only one team is going to win a world championship. So most of the time you're losing and um, you know, so there might be only 15 to 20 or 25 players, depending on the level you're at that actually are winners. So so-called winners. Um, and are they attractive to recruit? Yeah, they are. A lot of times they are. 
But if they get into a program where things don't go as well for them, how do they react then? You know, when they, they come into, you know, oh, we recruited this, this player and he or she is, uh, comes from a championship. They have championship pedigree. And they're going to take us to the promised land. We're going to go from mid-pack up into the top. And all of a sudden it's hard because every team wants to win and all the players are good at the next level. And they don't know how to respond because everything's been easy for them. They've been on a team where they're, you know, a top dog amongst top dogs. Now they have to carry more of the load. So they might shrink in that, that environment. Others may thrive. So I think it's really about taking all the tools that they learn throughout their um, developmental years and then trying to maximize them, you know, because really I think at the minor hockey level, youth hockey, it, it, sh- it shouldn't, the coach's main job is to get them to want to play the next year and to give them all the tools so that they can be successful at the next level. It really isn't about winning and losing. And even at our level, we all want to win, but at the end of the day, my players aren't going to go play professional hockey right now. Like that's not a viable option for them in women's hockey. Uh, as much as we want to hope for that, and, and I do it very much, but we're pretending to say that they're making a living playing hockey. They might play for a few years and they might make a few dollars, but it's not a, a viable option the way it is in the men's game. So the winning and the losing is secondary to what they learn as people that are going to help them be better doctors and lawyers and teachers and mothers um, and community leaders and coaches. Um, so I think it's all about perspective and taking the, the toolbox you have and looking at the tools in it and then adding in what you need. So we're all winners at a losing game, basically. <laughs> yeah, I think we can be, though. I mean, I think, yeah. I think too often in sports we say there's success and there isn't success. So, you know, like I've always been a good coach, even in the years that I was losing. You know, I think I've been a good coach. I've learned how to be better. I've learned how to become a better coach. But if we have a losing season next year, it's not like I had, I was a good coach in one year and a bad coach the next year. And I think, I mean, that's something I've, I've looked at a lot recently from John Wooden, you know, you know, he won 10 national championships in 12 years there from the late, the mid sixties to the mid seventies. And people, reporters would say, oh, you're such a great coach. You're the world's greatest. And he said, I'm not any greater than I was in the years we didn't win a national championship. Sometimes we lost the national championship that we probably should have won. And we've won some of those national championship games that we should have lost. We weren't the better team, but you know, we had scored more points. I I kind of feel that way this year. Like um, when we lost to U of T, I said to my team afterwards, we did everything that we, we needed to do today, except score enough goals. You know, we played a great game. We outshot them. Every statistical category was positive except for the scoreboard. And, um, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes. So, but I was really proud of how we played and, you know, cause going into a game like that, if you come out flat, you're really disappointed in how you react on a mental and emotional side, but we did everything that we could in that game. And, and we just, we shot it into the middle of the tee and the, the goalie's crest and, and she made some key saves and we just didn't score enough goals. But um, sometimes you can play really well and not win. Oh, we've all been, we've all been there before my friend. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to uh, want to touch upon um, you know throughout this whole process. How important is leadership, not just from the management and the coaching staff, but from the athletes? And what makes a good, what, not a good, what makes a great leader on on both sides of the spectrum? Because they're two different roles. 
So I'm, I'm doing my master's right now, and this is going to be the focus of my master's is leadership in, in uh, youth sports and uh, positive youth development. Uh, but I think leadership is critical. And I think leadership within the athlete group is, is critical for success. I think the more leadership you have, um, positive leadership that propels the team forward, that creates a cohesive culture, a positive environment, the better you're going to do. You know, at the end of the year, in any, you know, when you ask coaches why they were successful in any league where they've, they've had a championship run or they've done really well, they'll usually say, um, or they never say, We've, we won, but what a bunch of jerks. They never say that. Mm-hmm. They always say, we had great leadership and what a pleasure they were to coach and how connected they were. Um, those are typical things that come out. And I think the environment is really created and cultivated by the leaders within it. And it's not just a coach. It's got to be um, three or four or five or six leaders within a team that help create an environment that the others then buy into. And um, I think, you know, a friend of mine has an acronym for leadership uh, lead. Uh, Dave Cooper is his name. He's a mental skills consultant, done a lot with minor hockey and um, different sports at the Olympic level as well. Um, But, you know, lead stand L is for love the battle. So I think all leaders love the battle. Um, And, you know, they lead by example. They love to be in moments where there's top competition. E is um, energize their teammates. So in some way, it could be that they're a huge cheerleader, that they're a vocal presence in the dressing room and on the ice. It could be that they just show people that they they love and care about them. Um, A is act with integrity. So they do things the right way. You know, they show up on time. They put in the work. They eat right, they sleep right, they rest right, um, they work hard on and off the ice in the classroom, in life. And then D is develop a we before me mentality. So when things go bad and they're not scoring or they're having a tough run as a goaltender, they still understand what they bring as from a leader uh, to the team. So I think a great leader has as many of those characteristics as you can possibly have. Not, it's hard to get a leader that has four out of four. You know, and I often use an example uh, with some of my national team athletes that you know, there were some great leaders, but they, they didn't always check all four boxes. Um, they had to learn. They had areas where they're more comfortable, but then they had to, to learn um, how to energize their teammates if they were shy uh, or soft-spoken. And that was to maybe take someone under their wing and show them that they cared off the ice that can provide a lot of energy as opposed to just being a raw, raw cheerleader on the bench. Um, and, you know, players at that level that love, love the battle, if they're not scoring or they're not contributing, they can really become internal and say, why am I not scoring? And then they, they aren't a leader, they're a distraction. And so being able to look outwardly. So I think great leaders have self-awareness know why they're a great leader they do those things every day and they are able to shift gears and recognize what they're not good at and develop those skills too um and i think but i think everyone has a certain subset of those and we just cultivate it uh, and it's what we bring out and what we're willing to to share and put ourselves on the line and i think great leaders put themselves out there 
on a daily basis. Would you say that, you know, the top leaders out there, whether it's in life, sports, business, whatever, would you say that they don't need to be told what to do because they already know what to do? I think in many instances, there are people that have leadership skills that they're willing to just go and try things. They have a confidence to, to step up to the bat, as it were. But I think even the great leaders have things to learn. Like not every approach works with every person. You know, um, I think sometimes, um, I think sometimes in sport, like especially in hockey, what we think good leadership is, isn't always good leadership. You know, that's true. Um, I don't know what kind of leader Connor McDavid is because I've never been around him in the dressing room. I, I find it hard to believe that a 19 year old can lead a group of 30 year old, 25 year old men. I could be wrong though. Like, I mean, he could be amazing, but it probably would have been better if he'd had a few years to develop his leadership skills without having to wear a C for me, that's a marketing thing. You know, they yeah. want to put the C on him to so sell more, Wayne more jerseys. Thing. Yeah. And was Wayne Gretzky the best leader on that team? Certainly or wasn't was, the best coach. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, I think he could have been a really good leader, but he was also surrounded with a lot of really strong personalities too, like Mark Messier and uh, the list can go on down on that, the, the boys on the bus team, you know? So, you know, it's a funny thing. What we look at is what, what good leadership is. And some people are like super hard workers and that's great, but if they don't know how to say the right thing at the right time when their team really needs it, then they aren't making the most out of their leadership opportunities. So I think more and more what companies and sports teams realize is that you need different people to do different things and you need to be able to shift gears and you need to trust in certain people at certain times and that all this collective of leadership is probably more important than necessarily one person leading the way. Although you might need someone to set the direction and have a vision. You need a bunch of people to make, to enact that. Let's talk about your leadership group. Um, uh, and from a roster standpoint, what's one thing they all have in common and then what's a unique asset they bring to, to that role? Yeah. So we have six people in our leadership group. Um, five of them wear letters. So three are kind of, we have a, a, a captain, Aaron Locke was our captain this year. Um, and then we had two players that wore an A permanently. And then we had two players that one wore the A for home jerseys and one for away. And then we had a goaltender. And, you know, we didn't structure it in any particular way other than who we felt were the, the people that really spoke for the team. Um, one thing that they all have in common is their... Uh, their work ethic and their willingness to lead by example. So they're the ones who put in the work in the off season on the ice that compete the hardest in the, in every drill. And that's what all of their teammates said about them. Um, I think that's great. I think the problem that we had over several years and what we've worked with to develop in each of them was the ability, you know, to, they all said that they're, they're, they're weak was holding people accountable. You know, we hear so much about that. It's about accountability. And in hockey, it's like, well, you get accountability by benching people or skating people. And, and I don't think you do. I think you get accountability when people want to buy in and work hard for their teammates. And so we had to develop skills for them to have, uh, to deal with adversity, 
to deal with uh, difficult conversations, to have a conversation with a teammate when things weren't going well that they didn't feel was going to wreck their friendship with them because that's was a big fear. Um, I think, you know, um, Aaron is a very soft-spoken leader, but when she says something, people listen. I think the key for her to learn what made her a great captain this year, one of the best that I've coached, was uh, she pushed herself outside her comfort zone to talk at certain times. And specifically, you know, kind of in between periods and at the end of games to say things that resonated with the group. But her, her work ethic is unmatched everywhere, classroom, gym, on the ice like she's the same she's 100 percent pedal to the metal all the time and she's a lot of leadership currency because of that you know no one can say well she's taking it today off uh, and that raises the bar for everybody you know and, and you know some of my assistant captains like kelsey mccomb is very very gregarious outgoing loud um you know she she is talks uh, and she's someone who can pump everybody's tires and, and she competes hard. And then, you know, we have another, uh, you know, a couple of third year players on our team. Ellen Donaldson is like the mother of the group. You know, she makes sure everybody's taken care of off the ice and is always a smiling face. And, and Avery Reeves is that was the same kind of uh, person, a fourth year player. You know, I've never seen her without a smile on her face and works super hard and just takes care of the details off the ice and really strong in the gym. Courtney Gardner, you know, again, she just makes feel, people feel comfortable and she's vocal. You know, she'll, she's willing to say what the team is thinking and she's willing to confront people. Um, and Lauren Doobie is our, our, uh, was the goaltender in the group and she was just the kind of the conscious of the team. And um, I think she was great because she would challenge me a lot as a coach, you know, and she'd bring things and say, well, can we do this differently? And, you know, at times it's hard to hear that as a coach and then you go, yeah, we can do that differently. Uh, and I think she was right every time. So they all brought, you know, I think we cultivated a relationship amongst the group of us that then permeated through the team where we could have, you know, we could address any elephant in the room as opposed to trying to avoid it. And I think when you have good leadership, you're able to address that elephant. And, and that's something I've actually uh, been learning through my course here you know, is, is that uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable and put yourself out there more, which is something we uh, were discussing uh, before we uh, started recording here. And it's so true. And and it's funny. I have this new saying that um, success leaves clues and a lot of the stuff that's successful out there, um, you know, they leave the same clues, but sometimes we don't always focus in and see it. Sometimes we don't always focus and uh, listen for it or we, we hear it, but we don't listen for it. And I think that's something there when you, when you get that kind of group together, you know, who, who can bring all those different intangibles and it starts to become this great mixture, you know, into your mental factory. And then the whole team can feel like, okay, well, you know, I got, you know, churchies are, is the boss. We got him behind us. We got, you know, X, Y, Z, ABC are on our leadership group. Like I got those people behind me and that can really help build that self-esteem and confidence uh, for a group. And I think that's, that's absolutely phenomenal. And that's something I'm learning in this course more and more and day by day. And, uh, after, uh, we, we finish up here in, in a little bit, we have a thing uh, that in this course, it's been phenomenal. It's an accountability document that the founder, uh, learned through, uh, Jocko Wilnick. And it's been actually the perfect thing for 30 people from all over the world to come together 
and to compete in a healthy way and get stuff done and not just be like, okay, well, I'm a perfectionist. I'm this, I'm that. It's like, no, here's what we got to do. Here's the objective. Find it, move on. And, uh, and, it's, and it's worked out well and people have stepped up in different roles. It's made people say, hey, you know what? I'm not as good at, th- at this, but you are. And I know you're not good at this, but I am. And that's something I actually learned when I was in the military and basic training. Uh, the sooner that you can all come together and do that stuff, you know, they, you, you got this newfound power and it's amazing. It's a great feeling. Um, let's uh, switch gears here. I want to, there's two things that I uh, want to pitch to you in terms of philosophy of, of what you believe it means. Um, and the first thing is failure is just testing. So when you hear that, what, what, what comes to mind in Jan, for Dan Church? Yeah, I think um, over the years, I've liked the failure is success training. It's um, a good way to put it. I like that too. Yeah. Um, you know, you hear things fail forward and uh, win or learn, all those types of things. So um, I think it's about, you know, all the research that's coming out now about growth mindset or dealing with grit. You know, Angela Duckworth and came out with the book Grit which was based on a study she did with West Point um, cadets mm-hmm. uh, and then inner city kids in Baltimore area um, is that the way that you approach failure is more important than anything. Um, because like we were talking about, so my background in sport, I played, I played lots of different sports, but I was most elite in hockey and, and golf was my sport that I was most successful at. In golf, there's 144 guys that tip it up every every tournament, and only one guy is going to win every week. And so there's 143 losers, if you want to think of it that way. But it's really about maximizing your potential on any given day, you know. And I think the times I did my best when I was a golfer was when I could get out of my way with the ego of of winning or the distraction of winning, because it can be very distracting. You can forget what you're doing in the moment. And when we actually, you know, I could get really good quality in the moment, you know, just executing what needed to happen in that, in that second. Um, and then all of a sudden the results happen and, and you can be really satisfied. But um, I think when you, when you fail, it's about looking at everything that you learned from that experience as opposed to the emotional, you know, a lot of times, and I've done this a lot myself, as a coach, as an athlete is when you fail or when you lose or you make a mistake, you beat yourself up mentally. You know, you're, you can, it's like this battle that's going on within your brain and the emotions take over and you go into this downward spiral Uh, and you start talking to yourself in with negative, in a negative way. You know, you're a loser. I can't believe you made that mistake. Um, You idiot. You're so stupid. And we have to talk to ourselves like a best friend, you know, like we, and that's, I know John Gordon talks about, you know, these guys that run super marathons and uh, one guy that's been very successful at it. He says, in those moments of self doubt, I don't listen to myself. I talk to myself and uh, talking to yourself in a positive way is, you know, there's so much science on it that it's going to make you more successful. And, um, so that growth mindset is really important. So the, the, I think it's about how you look at failure and being able to change the lens that we look at failure through as opposed to the emotional, like right after the loss against U of T, for example, 
I think this was the same for my team all year was that every time we lost, we really applied those lessons to the next opportunity. It didn't always mean that we won the next game, but we would adapt and, and we got better. And we really improved even from the start of the season to the end because of that. I really felt that, you know, when we lost to U of T in the final, it might've been the best thing for us because we were probably going to do better at the national championship because of it. You know, we, we, it was painful and it hurt, but we were able to rebound very quickly, you know, mentally. Uh, and, you know, as opposed to really being like so down in the dumps and depressed that we didn't win the OUA championship, we, we kind of looked at the lessons we learned from that game quickly and applied and we practiced the next night. I don't think a lot of teams would have done that. Like we played on the Friday night. I think most teams would have taken Saturday and Sunday off and then kind of got ready for the national championships. And, the team decided that they wanted to practice on the Saturday and we practiced on the Saturday night and it was amazing. <laughs> it was and Scotty, Bo you know, Scotty Bowman tactic. Yeah. Like no one would have thought that um, we'd lost the night before. So I think the lens that we looked through that we, we were like, okay, these are the things we need to learn and we'll apply them to the next opportunity. We, we all pre would have preferred to win, but oh, we, we that, that wasn't the reality. And so I think it's being able to have awareness to let go, you know, have the emotions for a certain amount of time and then start to look at reality through the lens of perspective. I like that a lot. And it reminds me of a saying that failure is just a reminder of what not to do next time. Mm -hmm. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't live with you unless you let it. And, uh, and in another saying um, that I, that I really enjoyed is, you know, we use memories, but we don't allow memories to use us. And I think that's once you wrap your head, like I, I struggled with that from with myself for, for a few years. And again, sometimes it just takes that, you know, aha moment in your mind till you like, Oh, something said so simple, but so complex that you can create that, that in your mind and be your own worst enemy. And that's again, when you're able to let go of the past and move on, like when you said your team, you lose OUA championship and you're practicing the next day, you know, Scotty Bowman had a similar thing where you know, they would come back from a road trip and be undefeated and he would bag them, you know, and they would go back hard into the grindstone. And when they lost, they would go and have a practice where it was like 30 minutes just shooting pucks around and they were off. Because uh, it taught, it, he was trying to teach the team without saying it, uh, you know, to get over things and there's a new objective and to move on. And okay, what, what's the next thing that we can do? What can we be in control of still? And I think that's a great message to, to relate. Um, here, here's something now. So I approach you, say, say I'm your director, say I'm your boss, and I come to you and I say, Dan, I want you to get micro with your team this year. I want, to get, I want you to go micro with their development this year. When I say that to you, what, what comes to mind when, it, when I want you to get micro with your players and their development? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple things that come to my mind. It's about like small detail. So micro is really, as opposed to looking at macro or the meso or, um, you know, in the buildup, you know, that 30,000 foot view, it's really looking at the, the details and the specifics. Um, and that, it can be across many different levels. So and I think developments, I think um, inexperienced hockey coaches look at development as only technical skill. And that is so a huge true. part. Um, technical skill can't go overlooked, but, um, you know, I think the physical 
development is a huge part. The better physically develop, you know, the more micro you go in terms of your detail um, there allows you to be better in terms of skill development and um, skill acquisition, skill, trans skill translation. So I think all of those things are, uh, those, those go hand in hand, the physical and the technical. And then I think there's the, the mental and social emotional that really, we've poured a lot of time and energy over the last several years into the micro developments of our athletes on those levels, because how they deal with adversity, how they deal with loss, how they deal with things going on in their lives um, affects the physical and it affects the technical. So if you're, if you're not going micro in terms of the development of the, the human being and the personal, you know, the wiring that goes on inside our, our skull here, um, then I don't, I think, you know, you can't have macro um, results if you don't do that. So that's what it makes me think of is, you know, each individual has certain details that they need to work on and you have to have investment in those areas. And I think as coaches, it's really hard to do because you have, in my case, 25 athletes, you know, and a minor hockey coach might be 17, 15 or 17. And trying to have a plan for each of them, because they're all at different points on the development curve. Um, that's a lot of time and energy and thought, and uh, it takes a lot of work. But I think that's what separates good programs from average ones. And that leads me into my next part is the you know there's the role of the coach and then there's the relationship between the player and the coach to bring it all together you know how, how do you draw the line do you find a lot of coaches are like no i'm the boss and this is the role we're talking i'm the boss it's my program this is how we do things around here this is how this brand works and if you can't buy in well you know we've been doing it since the 60s and then there's another approach, which is the relationship side is understanding the athlete and understanding the person and, and making that, you know, and as you said, it takes a lot of energy and time. Um, but, you know, there is the value. And I talked to Jesse Cook about this is to have some personal and emotional investment to bring to take an average athlete to make them a good athlete, to take good to great and then to take great to be high performing. Um, what's your approach when it comes to those, those two, uh, those two roles? I think the, um, the totalitarian coach is disappearing. It's becoming an, um, endangered species and probably rightfully so because the old style of coaching was intimidation and, um, you know, um, Iron <laughs> Yeah, you know, like, and, and I think John Tortorella is a good case study. You know, you look at him in his early coaching career, he was, he was in that, that same mold, you know, and it can have good results, but it's, they're short-lived. I think, you know, Mike Keenan is a, is a very good coach, you know, World Cup coach, uh, Stanley Cup coach. AHL. Uh, yeah. He's uh, won the big three. Uh, he was a, a very successful coach at the University of Toronto as well. And so it clearly worked and he had a good, he's had, he had a good career, but it's a short, short lived and it takes a certain kind of athlete to respond to that on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and I think John Tortorella, like 
the guys that played for him in Tampa had a lot different view of him than the guys that are playing for him right now in Columbus. And he's still hard, you know, he still has a exacting standards, but I think he's worked hard as a coach to become a more, to develop more relationships. And I think the right relationships, you know, like with your leaders, if your leaders trust you, then it goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Jansen is a guy that's done a lot of research and, and work in, in uh, sport in the NCAA. And, um, and, and he has a great um, graph of, of different cultures. And uh, the x-axis along the bottom uh, is uh, the emphasis on results. So from low to high. And the y-axis is the emphasis on uh, relationships from low to high. And a corrosive environment, a corrosive culture has a low emphasis on results and a low emphasis on relationships. So it makes sense, right? You know, there's not yeah. a much human investment. There's not investment in the right way to do things. Um, if you're just invested in relationships, so you have a high emphasis on relationships, it can be kind of like a country club, you know, so there's not a lot of emphasis on com- compete and doing things the right way. Conversely, if you're just, you know, like national teams and some, some sports, uh, you know, professional sports teams are, are automatically there, this emphasis on results. But if there's no emphasis on the person, on relationships, the, the cohesion of the team, it can be very corrosive. So championship culture is where you have a high emphasis on relationships and you have a high emphasis on results. And results isn't just wins and losses, it's about how you do things. Um, so doing, you know, how hard you pass the puck, how you treat people, do you use manners? Um, you know, how hard do you skate? Do you reload on after four checking? Do you back check all the way back into your zone? Like these are all results that you can track and and focus in on, you know, key performance indicators. So I think the, the relationship coach, um, that that's the, the new mold of coach, someone who has a vision for how things need to be done, but has the relationships to sell it to the team that they want to buy into it. Absolutely. I completely agree. And, and it reminds me of um, when I read Pat Burns's book and when he first came to Toronto and he came in halfway through uh, his, his first season. And then there was the big run in 93 and he was a, you know, a motivator, but a ball buster. And he even said in his book that worked up until the following year when they made it to the conference finals again. And it was that I'm going to push, 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 push you to your limit. And the following year, uh, the year that he was ran into town, uh, he said the guys that were his go-tos, his boys, you know, because he would be hard on them, but he'd be hanging out in the locker room, you know, having a pop there at the same time. Uh, he, He said that, you know, it was like, it's enough, man enough it's over like I, I what you want me to do I already did that for you I can't do anymore and you getting any louder isn't going to help to be honest I think you're a bit of an asshole now and and he he wished he knowing what he knew when he wrote that book he wished he could have approached it differently because that would have probably been the difference in winning a Stanley Cup that that and the call on a high stick but we'll get to that later um, and then there's the mm-hmm. there's the there's the other one um, and again I'm going to go back to Scotty Bowman on this and I remember um Larry Robinson said that when he played for Montreal and Scotty Bowman was there, Scotty Bowman's uh, had a great psychology. It was almost like a subtle torture because they couldn't figure him out. And uh, they said the greatest thing about him was 
he could be hard with them. He could be light on them. But at the end of the day, the entire team knew that Scotty Bowman was on their side. And that's what made them go over the top. And, and I think that's where, again, we look at back. People say, well, you know what? In today's NHL, that coach, that's years ago. That would never happen. It's like, yeah, maybe not. But I think the, the psychology that we're trying to implement now, that, that coach possessed and that was there. And uh, I think that goes a long way. And, it, and it's something that I think all coaches don't get enough of when it comes to their clinics and their certifications when they go in. They think recruit the best team, you know, especially with minor hockey and paid coaches today, recruit the best team. They need to make their 15, their 20, their 25,000 supplement their income and they'll do whatever it takes at the sacrifice of others. And, and that develops the wrong, the wrong path. Um, so no, I think that's, that's absolutely brilliant. And, and I, and I, I love it there, but um and uh, I know you, you have a tight schedule today. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but this is a question to, that I end off with, uh, with a lot of our more experienced uh, guests. And the question is, if 16-year-old Dan Church was here in 2020 today, chasing the dream, what advice would you give to that young man? Yeah, it's a great question uh, because, you know, the 30 years in between have taught me a lot you know, of, of, uh, of success and failure and, and success in failure. Uh, um, I think the biggest thing uh, I would tell my 16 year old self would be um, to work as hard as you can um, at everything you do to believe in yourself, because I think that's something I've struggled with, you know, um, along the way um, to be kind to, to yourself, um, you know, and to, to treat yourself like your own best friend. Like you have to be that person first before you can help anybody else, including yourself. So you have to, you have to be kind to yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, something my dad said uh, before he passed away on his deathbed, like, you know, the last words that he said to me, which I thought was just the morphine talking at the time, but he said, you know, uh, he said, son, it's going to be okay even when it's not okay. And it's kind of cryptic, but, you know, I realize how true that is, like, in, especially maybe during these times, we go, wow, like, this is strange times, you know, where we're locked and shut in at home and we're scared about what's going to happen, but it's still going to be okay. There's going to be positives that come out of this, even though there's some negatives. Uh, there's people that, you know, are, are going to lose their jobs because, you know, business dries up and, um, you know, there's going to be some people who get really sick and there's going to be some family members that might pass away. But at the end of the day, something good will come out of this. You know, people will be able to connect with family at home. They'll learn new skills on the computer. Um, they'll get time to read a book they didn't otherwise have have the ability to read so even i think that's probably the biggest thing for my 16 year old self is that even when it's not okay it's still going to be okay and the hard times and the, the difficult roads you travel down are going to make you better and embrace that and that reminds me of something i've heard on uh, one of my uh one of my soundtracks that in the end it'll be okay and if it's not okay it's not the end yeah. Dan, this has been awesome. I appreciate it. I cannot wait to do another episode where we, you and I just hammer out on one specific topic. This has been fantastic. And I really appreciate you being here, man. Yeah, my pleasure. It was great. 
This is the Real Experience Student Athlete Podcast. I'm Scott McDonald. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you all next time.